It's almost 11pm on the 5th of November 2007. The once vibrant party town of Perugia is now notably subdued. The narrow Italian streets, which used to be bustling with students, are strangely quiet. The usually party-goers have retreated indoors, as the city mourns the tragic events that unfolded just three days prior. The brutal murder of a British student in her apartment, sending shockwaves throughout the community. Amanda Knox and her boyfriend, Raffaele Solecito, are now at the local police station. Amanda picks up her journal and writes, I'm very tired. I don't want to stay. In the waiting room of the police station, the couple are embraced into a romantic hug. They start kissing romantically and then laugh hysterically at one of Amanda's jokes. They are interrupted by an Italian detective who asks Raffaele inside an interrogation room. Amanda is joined in the waiting room by two female detectives. They make small talk and are struck by Amanda's behavior. She talks about anything but her housemate's gruesome murder. She even makes jokes with the detectives. That's not how one would act after their friend was murdered, one of the Italian officers remarks to the other. She's so strange, the other one agrees. An hour passes by and the two officers go into an interview room where Amanda's boyfriend is held. Amanda starts stretching in a bit to relieve the stiffness in her muscles from sitting for so long. Unbeknownst to her, she's been watched by detectives at all times for the past couple of days. A while later, the officers come out and invite Amanda to the adjacent room for an interview. Let's go back over what you did that night, they ask her. Start with the last time you saw Meredith. Again? Amanda asks, raising her eyebrows. Again, says the officer. What did you do between 7 and 8 p.m.? The officers ask. What about between 8 and 9? I don't know the exact times, says Amanda. But I know the general series of events. I checked my email, I read a book, we watched a film, we ate dinner. More officers kept entering the room. An interpreter shows up. The tone of the interview sharpened. But Raffaele says that you left his house that night, the officer complained. What? That's not true. I was at his apartment all night. Amanda replies. The interrogators become angry. Are you sure? Raffaele said you left his house. I didn't, she explains. One large, framed officer raises his voice. If that's a lie, we can throw you in jail for 30 years. I'm not lying, Amanda says, shaking her head in disbelief. The officers take her phone and look through her messages. The last message she sent on the night of the murder was to her boss, Patrick Lumumba. It read, Ci vediamo più tardi. Buonasera. Which word for word means... See you later. Good evening. Who are you trying to protect? Who were you it? Who was it? Who was it? The officer that has her phone asks her in a raised voice. Who were you it? Who was it? The officers ask the same question repeatedly for hours on end. With each question, their voices grow increasingly louder. They call her a stupid liar and an idiot. Not getting the answers they want, the detectives start offering various suggestions on what she could have done the night of the murder. Amanda, said the translator, this is what happened to you. You need to try to retrieve those memories. We'll help you. Amanda starts asking herself if she might have forgotten what she did the night of the murder. Come on, said the interrogators. You were going to meet Patrick that night. Remember, remember, remember. Amanda shook her head. She never saw her boss that night. Or maybe she did? Remember, the officer demanded. We know it was him. Another officer snaps and hits Amanda over the back of her head. Feeling overwhelmed by stress and fatigue, 
Amanda closes her eyes in a bid to remember what happened on the night of the murder. I see Patrick Lamumba's face, she says. Officers are delighted with her statement. Yes, continue, one of them says, smiling. I think I went to the house with Patrick on the 1st of November, she continues. I was in my room and Patrick was in Meredith's room. I can hear Meredith scream. The officers smile at each other. That was all they wanted to hear. A paper with Amanda's confession is placed in front of her. Sign it, the translator demands. Amanda picks up the pen and signs the paper without reading the whole confession. The interrogators start cheering and hugging one another. Amanda is so naive, she seems to be unaware that she just admitted to her involvement in a murder. Her life as she knows it is about to change forever. From tomorrow onwards, she will be known worldwide as a sex-crazed killer. The public interest in the case will be so high that, for years to come, her picture will be printed on the front pages of the world's biggest newspapers. The prosecutor in charge tells Amanda to get up from the chair. She's been sitting in that chair for more than six hours, her muscles are twitching, her legs are numb. For a moment, she's happy she can now go home and rest. Before she can react, the Italian prosecutor swiftly snaps a pair of handcuffs onto her wrists. Amanda knocks, you're being arrested for the murder of Meredith Kircher, he tells her. In the adjacent room, her boyfriend, whom she had been dating for a little under a week, is also arrested for the murder. The media pressure is so intense that all the Italian detectives want is to solve the case as soon as possible, disregarding evidence and outright fabricating theories that do not align with the actual evidence leading to a complex case that will require years of investigative work to get resolved. Welcome to Dark Hour Chronicles. In this podcast, we will delve into the most infamous and thrilling true crime stories, be them solved or still shrouded in mystery. In today's episode, we will examine the gruesome murder of British student Meredith Kircher and the intricate trials of Amanda Knox and Raffaele Solecito. Meredith Susanna Cara Kircher was born on the 28th of December 1985 in Sadak, South London. Growing up, she was infatuated with Italian culture and language. She went on a school trip to Italy and at the age of 15, she spent her summer holiday with a family in Campania, South Italy. Her brief experience of Italian culture left her yearning for more, and she promised to herself that one day she will call Italy her home. Meredith went on to study European politics and Italian language at the University of Leeds. Her dream was to be a journalist. In 2007, she applied for an exchange year to the University of Perugia. Meredith was thrilled when her request was approved. She moved to Perugia in August of 2007. Meredith was studying her favorite courses, modern history, political theory, and the history of cinema. She quickly made a group of British girlfriends, joining them for dinner parties, movie nights, and dancing at the local discos. Meredith was strikingly beautiful, cheerful, witty, and utterly dedicated to her family. Perugia, Located in the heart of Italy, it's a city with a rich history and vibrant cultural scene. It has a population of approximately 150,000 people. The city is renowned for its artistic and cultural heritage with historic landmarks, museums and galleries that reflect its deep roots in Italian history. The city is also a major educational hub with more than a quarter of its population being students. Many of these students come from different countries. Perugia is also described as a bustling party city, 
owing its lively atmosphere to its large student population. After Meredith arrived in Perugia, she quickly moved into the upstairs flat of a house situated on Villa della Paragola. There were three other housemates living in the house, two young Italian women that were training to become lawyers, and a student on exchange from the United States, 20 years old Amanda Knox. Amanda was born on the 9th of July 1987 in Seattle, Washington. She was the eldest of three sisters. Amanda first visited Italy when she was 15 years old. She went on a family holiday where she visited a lot of the big attractions that Italy is renowned for. Rome, Pisa, the Amalfi Coast and the ruins of Pompeii. The country's picturesque landscapes and artistic treasures, along with its profound cultural heritage, completely won her heart. She promised herself that one day she will be back in this beautiful country. Back in the United States, Amanda went on to graduate from the Seattle Preparatory School in 2005 and then studied linguistics at the University of Washington. In 2007, she made the Dean's List at the university. She was still dreaming of going back to Italy, but she didn't have the funds to do so yet. Amanda took on three part-time jobs to be able to fund an academic year in Italy. She was a beautiful young woman with dark blonde hair and blue eyes. Amanda was described as outgoing, quirky and a bit naive. Upon arriving in Perugia, Amanda moved into the now infamous house on Via della Paragola. The house overlooked beautiful hills covered in green olive trees and orange-tiled roofs with ochre chimneys. The girls shared the four-bedroom ground-floor flat. The lower level of the house was occupied by four young Italian men whom the girls would sometimes visit. Across the street from the house, there were a few basketball courts and a large palazzo, with dramatic Baroque windows where the University of Foreigners resided. Amanda and Meredith were both enrolled at this university. Within weeks of moving into the house, there is tension between Amanda and Meredith over Amanda's alleged casual attitude towards sex, money and housework. Meredith was reserved and studious, while Amanda had a carefree attitude and was very spontaneous. A few weeks after her arrival in Perugia, Amanda gets a job as a waitress at Le Chic, which was owned by Patrick Lumumba. On the 25th of October, the girls decide to go to a classical music concert. At the concert, Amanda meets Raffaele Solecito, 23-year-old software engineering student. Solecito was shy and inexperienced with women. He came from a wealthy family from southern Italy. From the moment they met, the two of them were infatuated with each other. She spent the night they met at his apartment, and the next seven nights as well. On the 1st of November, All Saints Day, Shortly before Amanda was about to leave for work, her boss, Patrick Lumumba, texted her not to come in that evening because it was a religious holiday and the cafe would probably be empty that evening because no one drinks on holidays. Amanda was happy she didn't have to go to work because that meant she would get to spend more time with her new boyfriend. The couple had dinner together that evening, shared a joint, had sex and then passed out. The next morning, Amanda returned to the house she was sharing with Meredith and the two Italian girls. She was planning on taking a shower, changing her clothes and going back to her boyfriend's flat. When she arrived at the house at around 10.30am, she noticed that the entrance door was slightly open. This was unusual because her Italian roommates were out of town and Meredith wouldn't leave the door open being alone in the flat, but Amanda just shrugged it off and went inside. She quickly noticed that the door to her room was also open. Going into the bathroom, 
she noticed a few drops of blood in the sink, but again, she ignored it and went into the shower. When she got out of the shower, she noticed a large splash of blood on the bath mat. She tried to make sense of what she was seeing, thinking that someone had cut themselves. Amanda continued her routine, and after she had finished drying her hair, she noticed that someone used the toilet and did not flush it. That's when she put two and two together and realized something was not right. She quickly left the house and ran to her boyfriend's place. Amanda and Solicito came back to the house together to check for signs of a burglary. They checked Amanda's room and everything looked normal. Nothing had been stolen. In one of her Italian roommate's room, however, the window had been shattered. They then tried to open Meredith's door, but it was locked. At first, Amanda knocked gently and called Meredith's name, but to no reply. Then, a sense of panic began to take hold, and Amanda started knocking louder, hoping to wake Meredith up in case she was still asleep. But Meredith did not reply. In a final attempt to see if Meredith was okay, Solecito tried to kick in the door, but he wasn't strong enough to break it down. Not knowing what to do next, Solecito called the Carabinieri, the Italian military police, and the couple went outside to wait for them. A few moments later, two officers from the postal police arrived. The postal police was definitely not equipped to deal with any emergency situation. They were usually responsible for investigating crimes like internet fraud and stolen phones. The officers found two cell phones tossed in a rose bush half a mile away and one of them was registered at the address. Not knowing that the officers didn't have anything to do with their call to the Carabinieri, Amanda and Solecito told them that there had been a burglary and invited them into the house. Shortly after, one of the Italian roommates showed up to the house, accompanied by a few of her friends, and they too went inside the house. Having so many people inside the house without protective gear, the scene was compromised from the beginning. Finally, after a few more minutes, the state police arrived and kicked everyone out of the house. They then break into Meredith's room. There was a moment of silence. The policemen were overcome with shock and disbelief at what lay in front of them. Blood! A foot! Someone screamed. There was blood everywhere. On the floor, the British girl's half-naked body was covered by a duvet. Only one of her feet was visible. Bloody handprints covered the walls. The gruesome scene will forever be engraved in the officers' minds. After examining the crime scene, police officers realized this murder was above their pay grade and called in Giuliano Minini, the police prosecutor of Perugia. Giuliano was born and raised in Perugia. He wears well-fitted jackets that accentuate his robust and imposing frame. His thin, framed glasses sit on the bridge of his nose, his piercing glance always maintaining eye contact when he engages in conversation. After arriving at the crime scene, the first thing Giuliano does is to ask the chief forensics expert if she had taken Meredith's body temperature, a reliable indicator of time of death. The forensics chief tell him that they should wait until other testing had been done and that taking the temperature might contaminate the body. The temperature was measured the next day, 3rd of November. The time of death was approximated to be between 1pm on the 1st of November and 4am on the 2nd of November. The failure to determine a more precise time frame for her death was a significant mistake with far-reaching consequences. Giuliano processes the murder scene, noticing that, round Meredith's neck, there was a bloody necklace of light stab wounds. Inflicted, it was initially thought, 
in order to terrorize her into submitting to rape. Visible on her neck, an 8 by 4 centimeter wound, which completely severed a major artery. She did not die a quick death, unfortunately. The pathologist would later determine that Meredith asphyxiated on her own blood. After her neck was slashed, it might have taken around 10 minutes for her to die. From Giuliano's perspective, things are frequently influenced by Satan. In numerous cases that he prosecuted before Meredith's murder, he cited satanic influences in satanic cults. He would also accuse hostile journalists of Satanism. So it's no surprise that in the first stages of the investigation, Giuliano suggested that Meredith had been slaughtered during a satanic ritual. Over the upcoming four days, investigators will collect over 400 items as evidence from the apartment. Outside the house, Amanda and Solecito were comforting each other. Their affectionate display was captured on a paparazzi video that was later posted on YouTube, showing them kissing and embracing. Their demeanor did not reflect the sorrow one might expect when mourning the loss of a friend. Amanda faced several disadvantages from the start. She was American and, despite majoring in Italian at the University of Washington, could not speak the language. This limited understanding of the language might have played a role in her second problem, which was failing to recognize that she was considered a murder suspect from the very beginning of the investigation. The next day after the murder, Amanda and Solecito went shopping at Bubble, a fashionable clothing store on Via Calderini. There, the couple purchased two pairs of thong underwear and joked with the store owner they will have sesso selvaggio that evening. The couple's romantic behavior was caught on the shop's CCTV camera. A few days later, the shop owner recognized Amanda's face on the local news. Thinking that their behavior was suspicious, he took the footage and handed it over to the police. The prosecutors made the recording available to the rest of the world. It quickly became a widely circulated spectacle with the couple's fascination over the thong underwear being repeatedly broadcast on television and various websites. From that day forward, nothing was ever the same. On orders from Prosecutor Giuliano, the couple's cell phones were secretly wiretapped. On the 4th of November, the police called Amanda to the crime scene to identify missing objects. They opened a kitchen drawer filled with cutleries and knives. Do you see any knives missing? Asked the detectives. They lay the items on the countertop and ask Amanda if any of the knives are missing. When Amanda realized that the detectives were asking her if she knew anything about the murder weapon, an overwhelming sense of panic overcame her. She hastily covered her ears with her hands. The detectives couldn't help but interpret her reaction as a response to a sudden, intense noise, or perhaps even the chilling sound of Meredith's scream, further deepening their suspicion. The police confiscated a notebook in which Amanda had started taking notes while waiting to be interviewed. One passage read, The strange thing is that all I want to do now is write a song about this. It would be the first song that I've written, and it would be about someone who died in a horrible way for no reason. How morbid is that? I'm starving, and I'd really like to say that I could kill for a pizza, but it just doesn't seem right. I don't know what to do or think. The investigators were piecing together their theory. Amanda was smart enough to avoid saying anything incriminating, Yet, she was stupid enough to draw attention to herself. They believed that Solecito, a spoiled computer geek, was more vulnerable and under her influence. 
they shifted their attention towards him with the hope that he might eventually divulge crucial information. On the evening of the 5th of November, the Italian detectives asked Solicito to come to the station for an interview. Amanda follows him to the station and they wait together for his interview. While waiting, she wrote in her journal how she was exhausted and hoped they wouldn't have to stay there for long. During the interview, investigators accused him of covering up for Amanda. He requested legal representation and asked to speak to his father, but his requests were denied. Described by one of the officers as confused and nervous, Solecito reluctantly mentioned that Knox could have left his apartment for a few hours on the night of Kircher's murder while he was asleep. Upon hearing Solecito's confession, two female officers invited Amanda into an interrogation room. They subject her to hours of questioning, accusing her of lying and covering up for someone. Amanda tells the officers that she was at Solecito's apartment all night, but the Italian police are not interested in hearing that version of events. More detectives and interrogators enter the room. Most of them did not speak any English. The officers raised their voices and started using derogatory names, calling her stupid and an idiot. They confiscate her phone and misinterpret one of her messages to her boss on the night of the murder, insinuating that they met and possibly went to the house together to harm Meredith. They deny Amanda access to legal counsel, and at one point, they even resort to physical violence by striking her over the head. Feeling confused and exhausted, Amanda begins to question herself and entertains the officer's scenario in which she was inside the house when Patrick killed Meredith. She signs the confession and her fate is sealed. On the 6th of November, the Italian police announced that the killers had been found and that they arrested Amanda Knox, Raffaele Stolecito, and Patrick Lamumba in connection to the murder of Meredith. The prosecutor speculated to the media that the killing might have been a satanic ritual, with Amanda allegedly instructing the two men to kill Meredith. The media couldn't get enough of this story, when a beautiful young woman from an affluent British background is tragically murdered in Italy it becomes a big story in the local news. However, when the prime suspect in the case happens to be an attractive young woman from a privileged American family, it transforms into a sensational tabloid story. And when the prosecutor entertains the notion that the murder might have occurred within the context of a satanic ritual orgy, you're looking at the crime story of the decade. Journalists from all over the world came to Perugia to cover the sensational crime. In their bids to find out more about the pretty girl accused of murder, they uncovered Amanda's MySpace profile. She had posted her name as Foxy Noxy, a nickname given to an eight-year-old Amanda in her soccer league. Her MySpace profile was a goldmine for the journalists that tried to portray her as a wild girl and a sex addict who couldn't contain herself. Her profile picture depicts Amanda wearing a mini dress, laughing hysterically as she was pretending to fire a machine gun. Amanda's face was on the front page of all newspapers you could get your hands on in Italy, Great Britain and the USA. She was described as Luciferina with the face of an angel a devil with a pretty face, a sex-crazed she-devil, Foxy Noxy the man-eater, a witch of deception, and other derogatory names. After 14 days in jail, Patrick Lumumba was set free. His DNA was never found at the murder scene, and he had a firm alibi and witnesses that saw him bartending at Le Chique the night of the murder. By the end of November, the Italian detectives realized that the bloody fingerprints on the walls 
and the DNA that covered Meredith's body did not match Amanda, Solecito, or Patrick Lumumba, but instead a fourth person, Rudy Guede. Described as a tall, painfully skinny African man, born in the Ivory Coast, the 20-year-old Rudy Guede was a friend of the four male students that lived in the apartment beneath Amanda's and Meredith's flat. Rudy spent his adolescence in Perugia, and he was known as a good teenage basketball player, but one who lacked discipline. He would skip school to play video games, and sometimes smoked pot until he passed out. Rudy did not have a criminal record, but he had been accused of several local burglaries, and five days before the murder, he had been arrested in Milan after breaking into a nursery. He first met Meredith in early October in the downstairs apartment, and he was infatuated by her beauty from the beginning. After the murder, Rudy fled the country. When the bloody fingerprints inside Meredith's room were identified as his, Guere became the subject of an international manhunt. On the 20th of November 2007, he was arrested in Germany and then extradited to Italy on the 6th of December. He soon confessed to his presence at the murder scene, though he maintained that Meredith was murdered by an unknown intruder. He went on to explain that he wasn't in the room when Meredith was killed. He was in the bathroom, suffering from a severe stomach ache. According to him, an unidentified Italian man, whom he did not recognize, had committed the murder. Upon leaving the bathroom, he witnessed the British girl's dying moments. I have never seen so much blood in my life, he told the detectives. Rudy insisted that Amanda and Solecito had no involvement in the crime and were not present. After the murder, Rudy said he went home and washed his hands and changed his clothes. He then met a friend and they went to a popular disco called Domus, where he stayed until 2.30 a.m., he then moved on to a pub. Rudy left the pub at around 5 a.m. and went home. The next evening, by which time Meredith's murder was all over the news, Rudy went dancing. At around 2 a.m., when the DJ requested a moment of silence in memory of the murdered girl, Rudy alone kept dancing, according to three witnesses. A few hours later, he boarded a train bound for Germany. His DNA was found all over the crime scene and the British girl's body. There was little doubt that he had intimate contact with Meredith the night she died. Amanda and Solecito believed that Rudy's arrest and confession would prove that they were innocent, but the Italian prosecutors simply swapped Patrick Lumumba with Rudy Guede in their satanic ritual murder story and continued to prosecute the three of them. After a while, when the police realized that the satanic ritual story doesn't fit with the evidence, prosecutor Giuliano Minini developed a new theory. On the night of the murder, Amanda made a date with Rudy to party at her house on Via della Pergola. Later on, Tolecito tagged along. At one point in the evening, Meredith showed up and started arguing with Amanda. The two boys, both trying to impress Amanda, held Meredith at knife point while Rudy sexually attacked her. Giuliano then says he doesn't know the exact chain of events, but the night ends with Meredith's murder. Amanda was incarcerated at the Capane jail. There, she underwent a medical examination, including a blood test. The doctors falsely told Amanda that she was HIV positive. The news devastated Amanda. She wrote in her diary how upset she was and that she wanted a big family one day, but now her dreams were crushed. 
She also made a list with all her sexual encounters over the past few years, naming the ones she used protection with and the ones she didn't. Soon after she wrote the list, her diary was leaked to the press. The stories in the press were ruthless. The journalists were slut-shaming Amanda in all their articles. After a few weeks, the doctors told Amanda that she was not, in fact, HIV positive. A year after their arrest, Amanda and Solicito were formally charged with the murder of Meredith. The prosecution's case leaned heavily on two pieces of evidence. First, Meredith's bra clasp, which wasn't collected until 47 days after the murder by which point it had been moved across the room and lay in a pile of debris. The bra clasp was cut off from the rest of the bra on the night of the murder with a sharp knife. It showed traces of Solecito's DNA, but his legal team claimed potential contamination. Second, a knife, chosen seemingly at random from Solecito's kitchen drawer yielded traces of Kircher's DNA, albeit in very low quantities. By the time of Amanda and Solecito's trial, the story that the prosecutors sought to prove was riddled with inconsistencies and uncertainties. One glaring anomaly in their case was Amanda's alleged confession, which, rather surprisingly, was not recorded. This omission was noticeable especially considering the thorough documentation of everything Amanda said or did in the days following the murder. The lack of recorded evidence raised questions about the accuracy and reliability of her supposed confession. Furthermore, the readings on the knife and the bra clasp would ultimately be deemed too weak to satisfy international forensic guidelines. The low quality of the forensic evidence made people question the credibility of the prosecution's story. The absence of tangible physical evidence wasn't the sole weakness in the prosecution's scenario. It also lacked a clear motive. Amanda and her co-defendant had no apparent reason to commit such a heinous crime. However, the alternative scenario, which implied that Rudy Guede acted alone, was it without its own ambiguities. Rudy, a petty criminal who habitually carried a knife, had no prior history of committing violent crimes. The ever-changing story told by the coroner's office about whether Meredith was sexually assaulted or not before her murder just added more confusion to the case. In February of 2008, another examiner concluded that there was no definitive evidence of sexual assault on Meredith's body. On the other hand, he continued, it was evident that sexual activity had occurred, possibly under threat of violence. By mid-April, no one seemed to know much about what Meredith had endured in her last tragic hours. A new coroner's report did confirm the presence of some sexual activity, yet it was deemed impossible to ascertain whether it had been consensual or not. Rudy Guede opted for a fast-track trial held in closed session with no reporters present. He told the court that him and Meredith had a date at her flat the night of the murder and that he arrived at around 9pm. He continued to say that him and Meredith had kissed and touched, but did not have sexual intercourse because they did not have condoms readily available. Rudy claimed that he then developed stomach pains and went to the bathroom. He said that he heard Meredith scream, and when he went in her room to see what happened, he saw a shadowy figure holding a knife and standing over her as she lay bleeding on the floor. He further stated that the men fled, while saying in perfect Italian, found black man, found culprit, let's go. 
the court determined that his account of the events did not align with the scientific evidence, and that Rudy could not explain why one of his palm prints, stained with Meredith's blood, had been found on a pillow under the victim's body. In October 2008, Rudy Guede was found guilty of murder and sexual assault and sentenced to 30 years imprisonment. In his original confession to the detectives, Rudy stated that Amanda and Solecito had no involvement in the murder, but by the time he appealed his conviction, he changed his story. In his new version of events, he stated that Amanda was present at the crime scene and even had a fight with Meredith that night. His appeal was granted and his sentencing was reduced to 16 years imprisonment. Amanda and Solecito were held in prison with no bail. The first trial started on the 16th of January 2009. Both pleaded not guilty to the charge of murder in the first degree. According to the prosecution, Amanda had attacked Meredith in her bedroom, repeatedly banged her head against the wall, forcefully held her face and tried to strangle her. The prosecution believed that Rudy, Amanda and Solecito had removed Meredith's jeans and held her on her hands and knees while Rudy sexually abused her and that Amanda had cut Meredith with a knife before inflicting the fatal stab wound. The prosecution also said that Amanda had then stolen Meredith's mobile phone and money to fake a burglary. On the 5th of December 2009, Amanda and Solecito were convicted of murder and sentenced to 26 and 25 years imprisonment respectively. The trial was a media spectacle. 86 media outlets sent over 140 journalists to cover the opening of the trial. All news channels in Italy, USA and the United Kingdom were reporting on the trial that lasted almost a year. The public was divided on the guilty verdict. The conviction of the pair, despite the lack of evidence or motive, was primarily based on the weakness of their alibi. They claimed to have spent the night together at Solecito's flat, but there was no one to corroborate their account. The claims of the prosecution witnesses to have seen them close to the crime scene proved to be flimsy. Amanda's occasional eccentric behavior in court, her choice of wearing a t-shirt boldly declaring all you need is love, and the presence of a miniature sex toy on her key ring are all weighed on the side of guilty by the popular media. In Italy and beyond, the media appeared captivated by the notion of an attractive young woman being involved in such a gruesome crime, further fueling public interest and speculation. Amanda's cell for the next few years was furnished with four beds, a desk, a TV, a kitchenette, and a bucket where the prisoners do their laundry. She had three other inmates living with her in the same cell. Amanda and Solecito appealed their convictions and their appeal trial started in November of 2010. During this trial, a court ordered review of the contested DNA evidence by independent experts revealed multiple fundamental mistakes in the collection and examination of the evidence. It also concluded no evidential trace of Meredith's DNA had been found on the alleged murder weapon, while the review did confirm the presence of DNA fragments on the bra clasp, including some from Solecito. An expert testified that the circumstances strongly indicated potential contamination. It's the evening of the 3rd of October, 2011. The courtroom is currently overflowing with journalists and the family members of both the accused and the victim. Such is the crowd that the steps outside the courtroom 
are also teeming with people, and even the adjacent street is filled with people eager to hear the verdict. She's the devil, she's guilty, a man shouts in Italian. She should be in prison for the rest of her life, another one continues. Inside the packed courtroom, Amanda, dressed in a dark green top and a black jacket, is led inside by female officers. Countless journalists are trying to capture the perfect cover photo of her as she enters the courtroom through a side door. She looks fragile and scared. She lost a lot of weight, a reporter muttered. She takes a seat next to her Italian lawyer. Ten feet away, Tolecito is sitting next to his lawyer. His shaved head, coupled with added muscle on his shoulders, make him look more like a convict rather than the teenager he resembled a few years ago. The two judges enter the courtroom. They are dressed in fine black robes, one shoulder covered with gold ropes. One judge picks up a paper. His voice takes on a solemn and authoritative tone as he begins to deliver the verdict. In the name of the Italian people, says the judge, in a review of the first trial verdicts, this court of appeals vindicates the two defendants because they did not commit the crime and orders the immediate release of Amanda Knox and Raffaele Solecito. Before the judge can finish reading the verdict, the courtroom is filled with whispers and chatter. Amanda starts crying uncontrollably. Her family starts cheering. The judge raises his voice. Silencio, per favore. Outside the courtroom, people are not so pleased. It's a shame, a woman screams in Italian. Shame, 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 infuriated onlookers unite in a collective chant. Amanda and Tolecito are released that evening. Meredith's family was disappointed in the ruling. They were convinced that Amanda and Tolecito were guilty and that the couple should be imprisoned for life. The next day, Amanda arrives at the Seattle-Tacoma airport. Four years of a nightmarish reality had come to an end. Amanda gives a speech to the crowd of journalists waiting for her at the airport. I'm, I'm really overwhelmed right now. Um, I was looking down from the airplane and it seemed like everything wasn't real. Um, what's important for me to say is just thank you to everyone who's believed in me who's defended me, who's supported my family. Um, I just want, my family's the most important thing to me right now and I just want to go and be with them. So, thank you for being there for me. Two years later, in 2013, an Italian court overturned the acquittal of Amanda and Solecito. However, the Supreme Court of Italy ultimately annulled their convictions in 2015. The court published a report on the acquittal, citing glaring errors, investigative amnesia, and guilty omissions. In this report, a five-judge panel pointed out that the prosecutors responsible for the initial murder conviction had failed to prove a comprehensive truth to back the scenario in which Amanda and Solecito were responsible for Meredith's death. They also emphasized sensational failures in the investigation and criticized the lower courts for culpable omissions in ignoring expert testimony that demonstrated contamination of evidence. In November 2021, Rudy Guede was released from prison after serving 13 years 
of the 16-year sentence for Meredith's murder. Raffaele Solecito went on to become a computer engineer and moved to Milan, northern Italy. Upon her return to the United States, Amanda completed her degree and worked on a book about her case. She was often followed by paparazzi. Her family faced substantial financial burdens due to the years of supporting her in Italy, which left them financially insolvent. As the proceeds from her memoir were primarily allocated to cover her legal expenses in Italy, Knox has been a reviewer and journalist for the then West Seattle Herald and actively participated in events organized by the Innocence Project. Additionally, she became the host of a podcast, The Truth About True Crime. In June 2019, Amanda returned to Italy as a keynote speaker at a conference on criminal justice, where she was part of a panel titled Trial by Media. She married author Christopher Robinson in 2021. They have two children together. Amanda and Olecito kept in touch over the years and, in 2022, were briefly reunited in Italy. They remained friends. Meredith's murder was an immense tragedy. What made it even more disheartening was how quickly she seemed to be forgotten in the aftermath. The Italian prosecutor's unwavering focus on the far-fetched theory of a sex ritual as the cause of Meredith's murder only served to sensationalize the case, turning it from a straightforward case into a complex one riddled with speculation and outright falsehoods. Join us next time on Dark Hour Chronicles, where we will discuss the bizarre and still unsolved death of Charles Chuck Morgan. <laughs>